Um, and I was listening to the song and I was like, that's it. It's a storm. It's going to open with a storm and a stranger's going to come to town and people are going to go missing. And I'm literally walking up the subway steps, listening to Tupelo for the first time. And the whole story just started to roll forward, like in my head. Had I never listened to Tupelo, would I have gotten there? I mean, maybe, but am I giving Nick Cave all the credit? Absolutely. Like, I got my book published because Nick Cave wrote Tupelo. <laughs> Welcome to May Contribute a Verse, a set of conversations with creators we value. I'm Brenna Jenneret, children's lit author, mother, rock climber, and outdoor enthusiast, and co-host of You May Contribute a Verse. My co-host, Josh Munkin, is a children's lit author, father, science communicator, and podcaster. Today's guest is Allie Melaninko. We talk about writing horror with heart, a genre she says can help kids safely navigate their fears. In a world full of scary, dark things, kids need to know that they can get through it. Reading these books is a kind of practice and protection. We talk about how influential music is to Allie's writing, specifically Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. If you haven't already, read her debut, Ghost Girl, and see if you can find the 15 Nick Cave references. We'd love to hear from you if you do. And be on the lookout for Allie's new novel, The Disappearing House, coming August 16th. Here's Ellie's verse. No, I know what you mean. And I just feel like, I'm just like, oh my God, that pitch is awesome. Like, why is nobody liking it? And then coming from the other side too, it's just like exhausting and stressful and sort of like heart-wrenching, you know? You're just like, is nobody looking at this? Do I suck as an author? Like, should I just yeah. quit right now? You know, you're just over it. Yeah, and you're just, and it's like, it's so out in the public. It's just like you you watch these pitch contests yes. happen and you watch, and there's so many that I'm like, this is such a good idea. Why isn't anyone liking this? And then like, right? I also know, like my agent sometimes is like, I just don't have time to like yeah. sit here and watch, you know, this, this hashtag. And then it's also just like, just, just send me a query. Just, just send me your story and let's see what happens. Which it, like I said, that's how, that's how it happened for me. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, we're we're recording because we started talking about Cookie Pitch, and there, I just thought it was some great banter. So we're we're in it. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Allie, you know about Cookie Pitch? I she do did now. not. She yeah, she does oh, now. Oh, that's why it came I, up. I think it's brilliant. One second, you guys chat to Cookie Pitch. I'm letting my cat out of the room. She's being such a pest. One second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I promise we're mostly together. No, oh here. my God, you guys are great. You're already wonderful <laughs> and casual, and that's what I'm here for. Oh my gosh, yeah. I was telling Brenna I had um, just mad, like urgent. I need this slide, and it's for the head of the entire business. Can you please like do this in the next thirty minutes? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the worst. I work at um, an archive and the way that reporters will be like, cool, here's this super complicated like history of Brooklyn question that I have for you. And I need it in approximately like 17 seconds. And I'm like, that's not how research works. Reporter people, I'm sorry. I know you have a deadline, but like, I'm going to need a few hours on that one. Like it's just yeah. So I get deadlines. So I'm a trained, I'm a journalist by training and education. Okay. Uh, I've never actually worked as a journalist, but so you're you're already biased against. Me. No, 100. I'm not. Like you're lovely, and I I love the journalists that I work with too. It's just like their timeline and a research a librarian's timeline are vastly different universes. Like I'm like I'll get back to you in two weeks, and they're like, can I talk to you in three minutes? And I'm like, hmm, no. <laughs> you've entered my list of my long, long list of priorities. So, uh, what what all does working in archive 
entail? Um, so it's, I'm not an archivist. Um, I work with archivists who manage collections and they process collections and all that stuff. So people will be like, here, here's every letter my grandfather wrote from like, like the turn of the century till now. And it contains the whole history of this neighborhood. And you're like, great, we'll process it. We'll put it in the collection and researchers will use it. So, but my job mostly entails answering like reference questions that are of the historical side. So like people want to research their neighborhoods. People want to research the building they live in. I do a lot of genealogy work, um, which is fun because you learn some cool, some cool, some cool things about people's families. Um, and other, you know, and then it's also like people who are researching historical figures from Brooklyn. Like it's really, it's all over the place. It's like whatever comes through, comes across the reference desk, although we have no reference desk because of COVID right now. But usually it comes through in emails and stuff like that. So, yeah. But what what amazing fodder for a horror writer <laughs> or somebody who writes about ghosts and things. I mean, I yes. definitely... I Well, it's funny, too, because in um, my first book, Ghost Girl, I actually put the archive that I work in in the book. Um, the kids oh, go cool. on a field trip. Yeah. So they go on a field trip and it's like, it's fun because one of our departments is creepily called the morgue. And (laughs) it's called that because that's a newspaper term and it contains all of the clippings from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. So we continue to call it the morgue. But I was like, okay, there's no way I can't put this in the book because it's a morgue and that's creepy, even though it's not full of dead people. It's just, just full of newspaper clippings. Is it literally four floors down like it is in the book? It is. It is literally four floors down. Oh my gosh, that's, that's insane. Like, what a good setup. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, there is, so at the Central Library in Brooklyn where I work, there is more um, building underground than there is above ground. Above ground, there are three floors and underground there are four. And there's also like what was supposed to be the the formation of a, an original subway platform that never got built, that got like kind of the library got built around that. So there's just like weird, like, uneven steps and there's like lifts everywhere it's very strange but yeah it is underground and the whole thing with the lights ticking and it's super creepy and I was like I'll put it in the book (laughs) that is perfect (laughs) yeah I don't know if you have gotten your hands on ghost girl but uh that part is especially like it's so it's so good that it seems unreal (laughs) the lights lights are on tickers they go out and ghosts appear yeah uh, oh my gosh. I mean, That's I fantastic. added the ghosts. I haven't seen them yet. So but who knows? <laughs> who knows? I haven't been down to deck four in a while. For those listening, your hair is not white like Z's <laughs> <It> hair. <is. laughs> I love a good um, Easter egg in a book, though. We had Betsy Bird on last week, and she is so that episode hasn't aired yet. But she was saying she also likes to put something in about like famous librarians or whatever in each of her books. And she's always really excited when fellow library nerds know who she's talking about because, you know, very few people are going to get those references unless you're like in it. But um, yeah, I love hearing about that. I wanted to circle back really quick before we get too far into it about the hashtag um, conversation we were having. Pitch contests stress me out. Like it's just like we were saying before. Yes. It's like, it's so public and it's like, here's my idea of a book and nobody liked it. And now I feel like the dumbest author in the world. And I'm just going to go. It's so vulnerable. My head and it's so vulnerable. And the people who do it, I'm so proud of them. And I'm constantly like retweeting because I'm like, I think this is the best idea. Somebody like this. Um, but no, I, I 
got my agents through, like, I looked at manuscript wishlist and I just sent the query email, like the old school pre-pitch contest thing. And she, it was, it was kind of an interesting story because she, she, she was like, great, send me the first 50 pages. And I was like, yes. And then she was like, great, send me the whole book. And I was like, yes. And then she was like, sorry. And I was like, oh, Oh, no. (laughs) Right? Oh, not where I thought the story was going. (laughs) She was like, I loved so much about it, but I haven't struggled with the ending and I just don't know how I would sell it. And I was all upset about it as writers are apt to be. And so I took a chance, which I've, I've never done before. And it was with much prodding from my husband. And he was just like, just, just ask her what's not working. And I was like, I can't ask her. Like, this is an agent. I can't just ask them questions. Yeah, right? They're not people. Right? They don't... They're not people. <laughs> They're special, fancy people. And I can't They're like unicorns. Them. Yeah, we don't speak the same language. I do not speak unicorn. Right. So I was like, okay, all right, fine. So I thanked her you know, for her feedback. And I was like, you know, just out of curiosity, like if you have any other, you know, thoughts on how I could make this story stronger, I'd appreciate it. And she sent me this super detailed email and I was like, wow. And she was like, honestly, if you want, if this feels, if these changes that I'm suggesting feel like something that would work for you, we'll do what's called an R and R, um, which is a revise and resubmit. And she was like, send it back to me. And you know, whenever you do, and let me know. And so I did, and she was like, "It's it's good. Let's do it." And that's how that's how I got an agent. And then the that's funny thing awesome. is, that book was not Ghost Girl. That book died on submission. Ah, uh, right, big time. <laughs> so that that book was a, a a science fiction YA book that I wrote, where the entire magical system revolved around chess. Um, which is weird, but oh. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, fully. How did that die on sub? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. There were like power moves and it was like a very, it was, it, the book was called Palimpsest. And it was, it was, there was a, a giant chess championship that was like secret and magical and it was called Perpetual Check. And I had like this whole complicated system and I loved it. And I, oh my God, I worked on it for like seven years, which was insane. Oh, and then I- Goes to die. And, it, and it went on submission and I was like, all right, here we go. I've made it through all the gates, right? Like I, I, yeah. I, wrote, I wrote the thing, I did the thing and I got the agent and like, I'm going to get an editor. And then it was every, literally, like, I mean, she worked so hard. Every publisher in the world was like, that is not a YA book. It's a middle grade book because the central driving force is a girl looking for her grandfather who's gone missing. And I was like, so you mean to tell me that like, teenagers don't love their family members (laughs) and they were like yeah no we can't we can't do it they were like rewrite it as a middle grade and then you might have something so my agent was like do you want to do that and I was like okay I will and I spent a summer doing that I broke the bones of this book and I rewrote it and it broke me and I was like I've never been so low about writing as I was in this process because it, everything about it felt wrong. And that should have been a clue that like, even if publishing said, this is how the book will work. If, if it, if it doesn't feel right to the writer, then it's not right. And it's never going to be right. And you just have to know when to walk away. So I did the thing and I sent it to my agent and I was like, okay, I have two choices here. I can find a new story since I had spent seven years, more than seven years with this one, or I can just quit writing. Like that, that was the point I was at. So I was either 
find something new or just walk away now because this industry is not for you. And so because I write every morning before I go to work at 4.45 in the morning, I figure if I'm going to be up that early, I might as well do something. And so I started a new story and I spent six months and I wrote Ghost Girl and I sent it to my agent and she said, this is your debut. And it was. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a, it was, you know, I got my happily ever after for sure, but it was a journey from from one point to the other. <laughs> Extremely and especially stressful when it feels like your only path to success is co-opting something that you fully believe in and work so hard at. Yeah. Kudos for sticking with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I look, it's something I wanted since I was a kid. I, you know, I, I, I had already learned so much. Like I spent seven years writing that book and it taught me, it gave me like, it, it, it taught me how I want to tell stories. You know, I found, I know I hate when writers are like, I found my voice, but like I did, you know, I found the story, the way I wanted to tell a story. I, I learned how to string together sentences that were mine, that felt like unique. And it wasn't like I was copying someone else. Um, mm. So it's not like that wasn't worth it. It was all worth it. It's just, you know, I, I just think there's a, a dangerous narrative out there that a lot of writers who are querying believe, which is that like the book you wrote is the book you will sell. And that's just not always the case, you know, and sometimes, and I think one of the biggest things I learned from this is that your agent has to love your way of storytelling, not the book that you're pitching to them because that book might not make it. And so you have to, you have to have the kind of relationship where they're like, yeah, it's your voice. It's your style. It's your, the ideas that you have. And that is what we're committing to in this relationship, you know? So, and I was very fortunate to have signed with an amazing agent who got me through this whole ordeal. <laughs> shout out to Rena. Yeah. <laughs> Big shout out to Rena. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, people often ask, you know, like, how do you, how do you find an agent or like, what are you looking for? What, you know, how do you know that they're, they're the one, right? And I feel like you don't always know. You kind of have to jump in. But what you're saying is, you know, totally true. If they don't like the way that you write or the way you tell the story, then it's just not it's just not going to work. I mean, yeah. that that book that you first wrote, that seven years it took you, I mean, that got you your agent. And that's like, you know, one step closer, right? Which is... I mean, you have to, it's a great way to turn the perspective and the narrative sort of like you have to look at each book like a stepping stone almost because yeah, I would love to sell every, you know, quote unquote, awesome idea because I think I have a brilliant, you know, all my ideas are brilliant, right? But like, not everybody's gonna think that I've got an agent now. So he thinks my ideas are brilliant. But now I need an editor who thinks that too. And they might not always agree. So if you don't right. keep going, right. And I think that the thing that I learned from this too, which is also was, a little bit of like, not a shock because I feel like I kind of knew it, but also it still surprised me to learn that like, I always thought that with publishing, it was a matter of you get in the door. Once you're in the door, you're in the room, but you're not. When you get in the door, you're in the building, not in the room. And every book you have to get in the room again. So it's like, cause I'm, I'm going through that experience now with um, my third book and my editor is like, we love your idea you just need to work on what you've got. Like take the time, sit down, here are some notes. And my editor is amazing. Sarah is wonderful. And, um, but it's like, there's, I guess I naively thought that once you get an editor, if 
they're just going to publish you. <laughs> like, it's just like, here's my next book. Right. And like, that's Stephen <laughs> King's life. That's not everybody mm. else's life. So instead it's, you know, it's like, okay, here's, so I wrote this book or I know I have a lot of friends who just pitch things to their editor and they're like, if I wrote this book, would this be interesting to you? Um, I don't do that. I write the whole book and then I hope beyond hope that they're going to like it. Um, because I'm not good at pitching. See, I circled all the way back around to why I don't do pitch contests. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I was I was going to circle back around to the uh, the journalist thing. Um, you know, there's a certain perspective writing for yourself or writing to somebody else's spec, um, and it just depends on how you how you work. Absolutely. Um, if you can write write based on somebody else's idea or somebody else's need for a story, all the better because you've got already kind of a foot in the door without even necessarily being in the building. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think that, that like, I think that that's a, it's just a personal choice because I know some, some of my writer friends are like, I can't believe you write the entire book. And I'm like, but I have to, because mm -hmm. I also don't think I'm very good at saying, I mean, I know I'm not good at it since I've, since ghost girl has come out and with disappearing house coming out next, I have learned that I am not good about, talking about what my books are actually about. It, I, I have a very circle the drain kind of experience where I'm like, mm. well, there's this, but then also there's this. And then eventually I'm like, oh, that's what it's really about. And by then people have glazed over and they're just like, what are you saying? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, it's so funny that you say that based on your extremely concise and very tantalizing description of Palimpsest. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to read that book. See now. how much time I've had to work that out? I had seven years, years to figure out how to yeah. talk about that book. The book that doesn't yeah, exist. True. I mean, it exists, just not in a format that anyone can read it. But yeah. Well, I I am very much a panster like that as well. Like I cannot write the pitch and then write the story. Like they say that you should, which seems yeah. like would be very efficient and save me tons of time. But I can't write like that because as I write, I'm like, oh, what about this idea? Or what if I took a sharp right turn here and went this way instead? Or what if, and Josh can attest to this because he reads my many, many drafts on every story that I write. And you, you know- well, can... 22 of them. <laughs> yes, so many. But, That's a good friend. <laughs> yes. But the other thing is, I'm lucky enough to write picture books. So at least, so I also have to write the whole book and not, like I can write the pitch after sometimes. I often need help, need help with the pitch though too. I'm like, what am I trying to say here? Does this come across? I don't know. But uh, with, a, with a middle grade, I mean, I feel like that would be my same process, but it seems so much more daunting because it, I mean, that's a whole book. That's like a whole thing. And then if you take a sharp right turn in the middle, then what? Then, then you've got like two books, three books. Damn, like I got 200, 200 pages <laughs> to rewrite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think for for me, process-wise, like I I can't start until I have my opening. And that was that took a while. Like, like my character in Ghost Girl Z has lived as a character in my head for for like probably close to a decade. And I have tried shoehorning her into a variety of stories, none of which worked. Um, and I, so I needed my opening. And once I have my opening, then I have my end. And then I usually have like a key scene in the middle. So for Ghost Girl, my opening came via a piece of music. So we can talk about that. Um, and then I saw my ending and my middle key scene was the scene in the woods for people who have read it. So when the kids go out and try and find the ghost the very first time. 
And everything around there was just like, well, let's try this. And no, that doesn't work. Let's just delete those 500 words and let's write another 1500. Let's try that. How about this? You know, so it's a very windy process, but like, I've never been an outliner ever. Mm. So it, if you ask me to break down what happens in each chapter, I will literally freeze and have absolutely no story. Cause I don't feel like I know. I don't know until like, I make a very small certain choice and then I'm like, oh, that could work. And then that snowballs into something else. And then, and it's, it's, I I wish I was a plotter because I feel like they're so much more efficient. (laughs) And like, (laughs) I agree. I I feel like plotters have less imposter syndrome, you know, than pantsers. Um, Cause I just feel like I'm like, I don't know. It's draft 1500. At this point it's called draft. You're never going to finish this book. Like, you right. know, like when I read label them. It's interesting though. And I'm, I'm biting on this cause I've, I've, take, I've taken a stab 15 years ago at writing what, what I didn't understand at the time was a middle grade science fiction novel. Um, it's interesting hearing you describe yourself as something approaching like a bookender, which is not a plotter or a pantser, but you know, the beginning, you know, the end, and then you can fill in everything else to get them from from point point A to point B. Oh, I'm going to steal that. I like that. A bookender. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I did. I'm going to credit you every Hashtag. time, Josh, I promise. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Hashtag bookenders. Yes. So, okay, I have one quick question before we jump into the music and the playlist stuff because I'm so very interested in that. Um, so how do you how do you go about critiquing a middle grade story like that? Like, do you do like a chapter at a time or do you do the whole book at once? Or how do you sort of navigate that process? Because I'm thinking, okay, I have to have a draft, like a full, you know, beginning, middle, end to send to somebody. But with a middle grade, I mean, especially as a panster, I mean, if you've only got the one chapter and you're like, does this one follow with this one? Can I send you two chapters? Like, how do you do that? So I have really, truly some of the most wonderful beta readers in the world. Um, they're uh, my two, my two best go-tos are my friends, Amber and Allie, who are agent siblings of mine. We, we are all one of Rena's clients um, and they are both absolutely wonderful. Um, but I don't send them anything until I have a full story. It can be like, I have often sent them like a horrific, messy first draft, but at the very, like, I don't, I, I, I'm beta reading for someone right now who is like, here's the first half, give me notes, and then I'll write the second half. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Like, I've never, like, ooh. Like, also, I feel like, ooh, ooh. Like, I'm so influential. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you're going to you're gonna really consider yeah. what I say? Like, ooh. All right. Like, ooh. I could write the ending. Let's see. My this mark's is... going to be all over your work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this is like real life. Choose your own adventure. Right? Like, I'm in I'm charge. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm not because she's she's going to write her book and it's amazing. Um, but I don't. Yeah. So I write the whole thing, but I don't. And I usually write mostly chronologically. I feel like I I hit a wall at like 15,000 words. I always hit a wall there. Mm-hmm. And then I do the then I like, oh, well, you since you're not really sure what's going to happen next, let's go back to the beginning and start tinkering. And then I'm like, oh, this is a better sentence and this is a better way to say this and this is a funnier piece of dialogue and blah, blah, blah. And then after about a couple weeks that goes by, I'm like, hey, guess what, Allie? You are procrastinating because you're not going to finish this book. So no more tinkering with the beginning. You leave that alone. And it's time to really sit down and decide what happens next. And once I power through and get to like 15, once I really get to 25,000 words, from there to like the, the goal of like 55 to 60, it's usually pretty rapid. 
Like then I'm like, okay, here's the story. I got over the little hill and the roller coaster's mm. on its own and here we go. Um, but then, yeah, at, when it comes to critiquing, like then at that point, I'm like, hey, friends, would you like to read my very messy book? And they're wonderful. And they Apologies agree. in advance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so please tell us all about how music plays into your writing because this is, I mean, I think it's so interesting and it's been talked about a lot recently in terms of pitches. Like, you know, instead of comping books, people are comping to songs or you know, other things to get like the feeling of it. Yeah, mood yeah, boards. Aesthetics. Thank you. Those are very big. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and movie, I've seen people comping to movies, um, which I think mm-hmm. is also really interesting. I think I've always, comps are weird um, because I think what you're trying to establish is a mood, not so much like a writing style or a plot similarity. And that's why like only comping to books seems weird to me because mm. I feel like music could definitely set a mood. Um so yeah, so with Ghost Girl, um, the only reason Ghost Girl exists is because I finally, um, and shame um, to my inner teenage goth girl, finally started listening to Nick Cave in the Bad Seats after fibbing about it for many, many years. And they're like, oh yeah, like Nick Cave. I'm like, yeah, Nick Cave. Nick Cave's great. Yeah, Nick Cave. And then I'm like, gotta start listening to Nick Cave. Yeah, you so can't I be did. goth unless you listen to Nick Cave. You, I mean, I, I mean, think that's totally true. Emo. Like, you can't, like, come on. Yes. He's like Shame the dark of the dark. You have yeah. to, yeah. Okay. Like, I should have I should have <laughs> had to turn in my Doc Martens at, like, freshman year of college <laughs> for lying about listening yes. to Nick Cave. Because yes. Oh, my God, Doc lying. Martens. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, fully. My fingerless gloves <laughs> what color and my Doc yours? Martens. Uh, oh, please. How many? I've had, I've had, I would say I probably, I, I often had the regular black, but my favorite pair were maroon. Um, oh, I thought I was maroon. really doing mm-hmm. something with like a red purple Doc Martin. And then I had a green, which felt just too showy. I don't know. Um, that was basically me, but also lying about listening to Nick Cave. So, um, <laughs> yes. So then I finally did. So I finally did. And um, I heard the, the title track, um, Tupelo. So Tupelo is an amazing song, which is really about Elvis, but also kind of maybe about Jesus. I'm not sure. It's very Nick Cave. Um, And it opens up with this like giant roll of thunder and then like a crash. And then the song, it's like, it's got this really hard driving beat. And he just like, he just wails right into it. And I was like, oh my God, this song. And it's got an iconography, like there's there's a certain language that Nick Cave uses that like I really just like relate to. Like it's because it's it's dark, it's kind of horror-y. Um, and I was listening to this song and I was like, that's it. It's a storm. It's gonna open with a storm. And a stranger's gonna come to town and people are gonna go missing. And I'm literally walking up the subway steps listening to Tupelo for the first time. And the whole story just started to roll forward, like in my head. Had I never listened to Tupelo, would I have gotten there? I mean, maybe, but am I giving Nick Cave all the credit? Absolutely. Like I got my book published because Nick Cave wrote Tupelo. Well, it's just, it's funny that um, Z as a character has existed in your head for so long. It's almost like finding, locking into a place where she could live and belong. Yes. Um, essentially. And and that's how, see, I also, um, my all my stories are standalone. Um, so I don't think about them in terms of sequels. So because I don't have any intention of revisiting, because people have asked me, because Ghost Girl can very much be considered like 
a like an origin story for a kid who discovers that they can communicate with ghosts. Like the whole during the context of the story, that's what she learns about herself. She has this ability, um, which she inherited from her mother, to speak to ghosts. And so I could I could very well be like, well, I can just continue the story. I mean, I love these characters, but I don't feel like I have another story to tell. So finding her a home, like you said, after all those years, just really meant a lot to me. Like I've had short stories, I and I've never published any of them because I'm like, something is just not clicking. It's not right. And none of them were, like, none of them were a scary story. And I think it was that too. Like I needed, Z needed to live in horror. I mean, poor girl, but she did. <laughs> so that's where I put her. You just need to listen to more Nick Cave. I mean, I really do. I don't know if it's possible because it's like I've listened to all of the Nick Cave. So I'm just waiting on Nick Cave to release more music. He just released a new album, Carnage. So I at least have that. Um, you should write to him and be like, dude, I'm waiting on you. Like, I am stuck. I have this writer's block and I'm just, can you put something out? Can you just make some music <laughs> Some, some me of your again? demos like, or something? Like, really, yeah. yeah, like you're really you stifling my process yeah. here. Yeah, he has this um, forum called The Red Right Hand and he will answer people's questions. Oh, cool. I see your face. <laughs> he will answer people's uh, Which is an amazing, amazing title for a horror novel. Right. So... I always, I always kind of wanted to write him and just be like, hey, you don't have to respond, but FYI, my like biggest life dream came true because of you and I want to thank you. But also I'm like, that is very, very, that is too far fangirling even for you, Alex. You <laughs> fangirls a lot. So like, I'm just going to let it go. The two things exist in the world and it's fine. Um, but write it from Z's point of view. Like, write, there you she go. should write the thank you and be like, She should write the th- thank you. Thank is... you. I finally found a home. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I mean, it's it's funny. And I, I have told readers this before, too. And I, I made it like a little contest, like if you can find them. But there are, at last count, there were, yeah, 15 references to Nick Cave songs in Ghost Girl from like character names to like. Um, the most obvious being the one based on the song Red Right Hand to like, there's yeah, they're just, they're everywhere. And I feel like if he ever read it, he would probably be concerned that. I wonder if you could send <laughs> He'd be concerned. You should, you should thank him and then ask if you could send him a copy. How awesome would that be? You guys could be I like mean, best friends. I, you could be I, his I, muse. It would be so meta. No, it stop would be it. Like- I can't. <laughs> It's like a magical unicorn, and I I cannot look upon him. No, it, I, I just have I to stay over him. him. Oh I my cannot. gosh, he he can talk to agents. We can't. Yes, they're all exactly. They're all, they're all magical unicorns. <laughs> can I just say though, we just we just published the conversation we had with Kaz Witness. Uh, speaking of magical goth unicorns, she's got the book. <laughs> if you're stabbing, that's the that's the Nick Cave unicorn right there. Yeah, that is. It so is. So Nick Cave, so Tupelo inspired and like gave Z a home to live. So when you're writing Ghost Girl, do you also have like do you have music on while you're writing, or is it sort of like in between and it sort of informs like when you sit down? So I do write to music, but I can't have any words because it's too, dist- I'm too, so easily distracted. Just, I, I will just, so I have for years listened to WQXR, which is the classical radio station in New York City. And I absolutely love it. Um, and I give them money because if they go away, I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> 
So um, I only listen to classical music when I'm writing, but I make playlists for my books. Um, so, and I'm also like, so I'm very, I'm very superstitious. Um, and when Ghost Girl was out on submission, I made it a point that I listened to Nick Cave every day, at least one song for like good luck for my book, which awesome. is like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I was putting the vibes out there. Like Nick Cave was going to be like the magical vibe that was going to get me a book published. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm so ridiculous. No, no. Well, sometimes, sometimes when we have these conversations, we'll tag people. Uh, when we do the promo tweets, maybe we'll just give Nick a pass I mean, and we'll tag him on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think he himself is on Twitter, but like the bad seed, like Nick Cave and the bad seeds as like an official thing are on Twitter. Please, by all means, do it because I'm too afraid to do it. I think we back, should. Please. I'm begging. Definitely. You. Right, we'll do it by proxy. Yep. <laughs> yes. But I think so. I was going to say, too, I don't think that's crazy at all. So we had an episode on with um, Gerald Connors and it was all about like manifesting what you want to happen and like putting it out into the world. And I think that is part of it. Like listening to those playlists and like sort of being on that wavelength and like thinking about Z every day and just like picturing this book as an actual like physical book that you can hold. I, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of power in that. And as I said in that episode, sometimes like too much power, like you, you know, you, I sometimes back away from that. Cause I'm like, Oh wait, is that what I really want? Because I feel like I could make that happen if I really like, intensely like thought about it but like maybe I don't know so you sort of like I mean I think the thing with that too is that there's so little so because writing is such a solitary event um the imposter syndrome can be significant and then once the book is written which is a huge accomplishment in itself and sometimes I also feel like that like you wrote a book like a whole book like whatever happens with it after that though now is completely out of your control, you know? Mm. And I feel like making aesthetics and, and people who have like the mood boards and playlists and doing superstitious things like listening to that music, it feels like some sort of small bit of control you can have. It's like some way to say like, I believe in this project and, and I don't want to like tinkerbell it, like, you know, clap your hands and your book will be real. But like, I do think that there is a little bit of you that has to skate through all the unknowing on the belief that you you made something worthwhile. And it's hard to maintain that. And also like the time frame is just, I mean, there'll be months, months and months can go by and you will not hear a response. And then you finally do. And it's just an editor saying like, thanks anyway, this wasn't for me. So it's like, you got to do these little things, I think, just to keep yourself afloat because it's a, it's not an easy business. And I didn't, I didn't think I was cut out for it for quite some time, especially after what happened with, you know, the first book. But I think that, you know, you can, if doing things like listening to these playlists and making these mood boards remind you to believe in your, your ability to tell a story and tell a story that matters and that you're the only person that can tell your story, then, then by all means, go all in, do it, dress up as your character, like knock yourself out. Yeah. I think, I think that's spot on. Yeah. Like trying to have some kind of control over it. I wanted to ask you too about, cause I, I think you said on one of the chats that we had or one of the threads so you talked a little bit about why you think horror is important for kids, like to have it out there. So what do you, can you tell us more about that? Cause I'm very sure. interested. So I, I was a horror kid. Um, 
and you know, I, my, I grew up in a small town, uh, much like Z. And my mom would take me to the library and I'd come out with like a giant stack of books. And one time on the very top of that giant stack of books was a book called um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is a very famous book. And it's got a very creepy cover. And my mom took one look at it and she was like, absolutely not. And she plucked it off the top and put it back on the shelf. And she did it for reasons because I also would be up all night with nightmares. Like I'm very easily scared. So she was like, you're not going to read that because I'm not going to sleep. Like, I know how this works. We've been down this road before. You are not ready. And so I went to the library at school and I would sneak read it off the shelf there, you know, kind of hiding from the librarian because it also felt like weird. Like, that's not the things my other friends were reading. I think being a horror kid in the past when I was growing up was a kind of lonely experience. A friend of mine, um, Allie, wrote, also wrote a piece about, like, the loneliness of the horror kid. And... Ultimately, when I decided that um, I was either going to quit writing or I was going to write something new, I was like, okay, well, what, what mattered to you? Like, what, what was the story that you wish you had? And immediately I was like, well, it, it would be middle grade horror. And I, I know a lot of people call them spooky books. I call them horror because that's what I think they are. And I think the reason kids, people, there's just so much gatekeeping that kids have to go through. And there's so many assumptions that are made that they can't handle something or they don't know about it or they shouldn't know about it. And the truth is, if you look at the world, good luck hiding the horrors. I mean, if you look at everything that's going on right now, you think a 12-year-old doesn't know, but they do. Like, they absolutely know. They know that there are monsters. And the importance of getting horror books into kids' hands is that a horror... A horror story safely lets you navigate your fear. When it becomes too much, you close the covers and put it away. But when you get through the story, you go into the dark of the woods, but you come back out to the light. That's what middle grade has to do. That's what makes it different than adult or YA horror. You have to bring the reader back out into safety. And what you're doing when you're doing that is you're basically saying to a kid, yeah, the world is full of monsters. So here is your sword and go get them. And you send them out there with some way to be prepared, some way of knowing that like, yes, terrible things will happen because eventually the real monsters will show up in their life. And I do fully believe that horror stories are a way to navigate that and a way to prepare yourself for when things get real bleak or real difficult. And when you read these stories where people get through it, then it's a reminder that so can you. And I think for me, I, I mean, I read so much adult horror, but like I will always gravitate to what is commonly referred to as horror with heart. And it's the kind of story where the empathy is so significant because the stakes are so high that you want more than anything for these characters to make it. And I don't think it's any different for kids. And I don't, I don't think we do them any service by saying that something is inappropriate for them. Because trust me, if they don't want to read it, they won't. But the kids who do, like, they're out there. And, and I've talked to so many teachers who are like, oh, these kids just want scary stories. That's what they, they want to read. And it's like, well, then we can give them to them and do them, like, service and, like, respect that they, they can handle it. Like, I think it just – I think when we gatekeep and decide what children are capable of understanding, then we're really just doing that to ourselves. Like, it's what the adults are afraid to talk about. 
it's not what the kids are afraid to talk about. It was always really important to me. And, and I wasn't trying to shame my mom or anything because she's like my, my, my biggest fan for real. I think when you, you have to talk about the hard things, like my second book that's coming out this summer, you know, is about, it's based on my experiences with being diagnosed with cancer. And that, that is a story about trauma. And it's about a girl who is on the cusp of her five-year anniversary of being um, declared NED, which is what it's called, which is no evidence of disease. Because we don't, in the cancer world, doctors don't use the word cure. That's not, like, that's a thing that people who don't, that's what they call it. They call it no evidence of disease. And so she's right on the five-year cusp of that. And she winds up discovering a house that appears seemingly overnight. And she's having some symptoms, and she starts to believe that if other people can see the house and that they, if the house is really there, then it's not a hallucination, and it's not a symptom, and it's not a sign that she's sick again. And because of that, she goes into the house, and she gets trapped in there, and the house becomes a metaphor for facing your trauma and facing what you went through and realizing that you lived. And, you know, I'm very nervous about this story coming out because, like I said, it is very much based on my experiences of having my life kind of schismed between the before and after, which is what happens when you have like a major medical diagnosis like that. I wrote it because I, I didn't write it for kids who are diagnosed with cancer. I wrote it for kids who have experienced trauma because it's about the elasticity of trauma. And a lot of people were like, wow, don't you think that's too intense for kids? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't think anything is too intense for kids. I don't think you can pretend that they don't have experiences that change them. You know, like you, you look at kids who, who are living in, in countries that are ravaged by war. You think that they aren't traumatized? You think that they don't need means of understanding, of seeing themselves in the world? I mean, that's the whole point of good representation. Um, I feel like I have rambled way away from your question. <laughs> no, that was, everything you said was <laughs> awesome and eye-opening and just, I... Yeah, I'm so thankful that you that you are willing to put those stories out there and that you're um, such an advocate for kids having those books to see themselves in and to work through the trauma. I love what you said about how middle grade is, you know, giving them this opportunity to go in, be scared to the point that they want to be scared, close the book and walk away. And then when they're done, the story also takes them back out into a safe place. And that, I mean, that is so important. Like I only write humor because I can't, I feel like a raw nerve emotionally when I write, so I can't write the hard stuff. I have a really hard time with it. It comes out really clunky, really awkward. I just, it's, I can't do it. Maybe at some other point in my writing career, I don't know. So I feel like humor books are also important in that way because they, you know, kids need to laugh too. There is a lot going on in the world. There is a lot of trauma and heartbreak and all of this stuff. And so that's an escape, but they also need what you're giving them, which is a way to actually face it and get through it. So yeah. And also about humor. The thing is, I, I view like, I view humor and horror as very, very connected. I, I wouldn't, I don't think they're like twins. I don't think of it that way, but I think of it as they both require the same bit of magic that happens in storytelling so that you elicit such a visceral emotional response. Either they are scared or they are laughing, but like you have to, it, there, there's just a little special like potion that you pull together to bring a reader to that point. And I feel like, like maybe they're like 
different sides of the same coin kind of a thing, like humor and horror, like they're doing the work just in different ways. So yeah, the, I love it's that. like a, yeah, it's like a build of pressure. Yes. In a release. Yes. Like pacing and like hitting the moment at the right time. Like that's how you make someone laugh and that's how you make them scared. <laughs> and, and I love how you describe them as two sides of the same coin, because probably a lot of my first drafts could be of humorous manuscripts could be conceived as horror. <laughs> I love that. Only through revision do we actually get to the horror. <laughs> so it's funny. It's funny that you mention scary stories to tell in the dark. A couple of reflections on that. One, that's, I mean, to my recollection, that's very much not in line with the bring us back into the light. I mean, a lot of those stories are just super creepy. I mean, middle grade does way different things with horror these days than it did with yeah. scary yeah. stories. Yeah, when we when when I was younger, it was it was just I mean, and also it, it didn't you couldn't be brought back into light because the illustrations alone are all you'll see when you close your eyes. At <laughs> it's night. all dark. It's so dark. It's so dark. But also like I loved it. Like it's like like you want to kind of get close to that darkness, you know, you like read it peeking between your fingers and like I said, I would have to put it down and put it away and be like, "Woof, that was that was a lot." But those are the stories that stayed with me. So, I mean, they're, they're doing something. I have to shout out uh, one of this guy that I'm about to talk about was my college roommate. But one of the first conversations I ever had on this podcast before it had its current name, before Brenna joined, was with a documentary director. Uh, he filmed a documentary on scary stories to tell in, the, tell in the dark. All the like a lot of the points that you covered about access to literature, um, you know, being present with things that scare you and working through it, all things, subject matter that he, um, that he covers in that documentary. It's very, very real. This. So <laughs> yes, it's just scary. I think it's just scary stories, the documentary. So shout out to Cody Merrick oh, for his documentary. I that he know put that out there. name. I think we're Twitter. How do you, you know, my, <laughs> you know, my college. I feel so. like we might be Twitter friends. Probably. He's got about a bazillion he, Twitter yes. friends. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm one of many, but still. Awesome. I need to see that now. Yeah, That's for sure. It's good. You talk about which which way should we go with uh, just the final point in that documentary. You talk about which way should we go with this. I'll I'll make the rest of the the book after I've gotten your notes, like for the second half. Yeah, that was me, and I put all all my my ignorant sort of stink all over his documentary. It's <laughs> <laughs> an early screener. Oh, I'm sure it was wonderful. Stop. <laughs> I was gonna say, is there anything that we have not covered with with you that you would like to cover before before we shout out like where to find you and what's coming next no i mean i i just i i just want to thank you guys because i will tell one little quick story oh so i love it please when i you're not allowed to talk about a book being accepted for publication until the publisher's weekly um mm. ad comes out which is a, a, a very special cruelty um, because you worked so hard to get here and now you're not allowed to yes. talk about it. It's so rude. Um, so for me, there was a lot of like weird contract negotiation stuff. So until the contract was signed, the publisher's weekly post wasn't made. So I went a solid five months without being able to talk about the fact that this book had been accepted oh for publication. And every day I died a little bit more. Um, so I was at work one day and we had an archivist, a we had a researcher appointment and this person was a name that I recognized and they had written um, a biography on my, my favorite writer. And I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to be rude. And I was very excited to meet them. And I couldn't help myself because I hadn't told anyone outside of my family about this 
this, you know, I made this, had this goal. And so I mentioned to them, I was like, oh, you know, by the way, I, I just found out that I, I got my, my first book published. And they were like, that's wonderful. Congratulations. You know, it's such an accomplishment. They were very, very generous. And then they were like, well, what, what do you, what did you write? And I was like, oh, it's a middle grade horror story. It's a, it's a ghost story. And she was like, it, for middle grade? And I was like, yeah, like eight to 12 year olds. And everything about her closed up. And I was like, this is not going to go the way I thought it was. And she was just like, wow, I would never let my children read a scary story at that age. Oh, man. And I deflated. And then I was just like, here's your research material. I'm going to go now. (laughs) I mean, did you have to? She didn't have to say that. You know, (laughs) she could have just been like, oh, cool. And then like, you know, that's it. Like, why? Why? Right. And. And you know what, honestly, and that was my take. I was just like, you you didn't have to say that this, that I, I somehow had done something wrong by like achieving what was my like eight-year-old self's dream. But I'm glad she did. I'm, I'm, I'm glad because I walked away from that and I put a lot of thought into why I want to continue to write these stories for kids. And because at this point, I consider it a privilege to be able to write stories that they will engage with and write stories that they were brave enough to read and to be excited about. And and every time a kid tells me what they love the most about my book or or like talks about a part or has questions about because there's 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 a dead character in it and I did a class visit and all they wanted to know, all that how did she die? And like the more graphic I got, the more excited they got. <laughs> and every time something like that happens, I think about that biographer and I'm like, you know what? You're wrong. Let kids read scary books. They deserve it. And I think it's a privilege to write them. So, And I uh, appreciate you for who you are. But this part of your your worldview, this is speaking to the biographer, is obviously very incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, it really is. It really is. And just so that she, she clearly felt strongly enough about it to like just put that out there. Just be like, yeah, no, that's not what kids should be reading. Again, you didn't have to. You didn't have to. But again, you know, I think about it and I think about the kids that find solace in stories that get dark and then get light again, you know, and and those are those are the kids that I write for. Adults need that too. I often read middle grade and I'm like, oh, thank God. Like, I'm safe again. Like, <laughs> this is going to be okay. I know it's going to end okay, right? Yep. Like, that's Cozy why. horror. I mean, I know lots of adults who read middle grade stuff. Like, they love it. And I yeah. think I think that's why. Like, I can't handle a lot of horror. My husband loves horror movies, but he has to watch them, like, by himself in the middle of the night when I'm asleep because I can't handle them. I do a lot of pausing and, like, talking about, like, my plan and why is she going in there and what's happening now and a lot of intermissions. And he's like, I cannot watch these with you. And, like, like I'm doing him the favor. I'm like, no, no, I'll watch them with you. I, I'll, I'll, I can totally handle it. He's like, no, really. Like, I don't. We, I don't want to watch this with you anymore. It's like too, it's too much. It's too intense. Like, please be quiet. So, and you're breaking all the tension. You know, you can't pause and discuss all the tensions. Yeah, no, which is the action. That's the point. I'm like, no, I can't. I need a break. I need, and he's like, come on. It's the movie version of putting the, putting the book down. It gets a little too scary. Exactly. Exactly. I love a pause button. (laughs) <laughs> well, the one thing that we haven't talked about, which is on your, I think on your website, on your about page is burning down the patriarchy. Oh. We may have to save that for the, <laughs> for the I next mean, Oh my gosh, yeah, please come back. How did we miss that? 
Well, good news. Um, I'm working on a story right now um, about witches. So there's going to be a lot of patriarchy. Oh, very, Literally burning. Very yeah. cool. Can you, will you come back? You could come I would back love to. to talk about all that. I would love it. I would love to. Yeah. I, cause there is no universe in which I could write a story about witches where they were the bad guys. So my little yes. witch family is going to have some, some serious revenge on, on the patriarchy. So yeah, I will definitely I love everything about, about so, this. That was, that was an amazing pitch by the way. <laughs> Right there. See, there's no universe in which uh, witches would be the bad guys. Oh my god! Oh my god. See, maybe yeah. I am getting better at pitching. Well, Allie, tell us, tell us where to find you. Like, tell our listeners where they can find all of your all of your awesome stuff and what's coming next. Sure. So, um, I have a website, AllieMalinenko.com. Um, I am on Instagram at AllieMalinenko. Same with Twitter at AllieMalinenko. Um, I tweet a lot about patriarchy and publishing anxiety and David Bowie and Dr. Who mostly that tends to run like that's, <laughs> that's my wheelhouse burn down the patriarchy that's read awesome. good books watch Dr. Who and listen to David Bowie yeah put that on my tombstone that's pretty much it what a mood board I mean right that's, I know that that's Ali Malaninko I got it I can like I can feel the presence um and Nick Cave and Nick Cave oh god I didn't mention Nick Cave how rude of me I apologize Nick we've talked about I mean we gave him yeah, his due we did he's gonna get a whole shout out Nick Cave is fine you're Nick fine Cave Nick is fine. <laughs> he'll be glad to know right, there's our episode title right there Nick Cave is fine with Ali yeah. Malaninko yes, yes. don't worry about Nick Cave he's gonna be fine <laughs> and so um upcoming so Ghost Girl is out now um, this appearing house is out next August on the 16th. And uh, I got lots of other, I got lots of other horror stories that I want to write. Call it nightmare fuel. I write nightmare fuel for children. There you go. That'll really upset that people. That is perfect. Right. <laughs> yeah, That'll really, really upset people. <laughs> it's going to depress our listeners. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. I promise. It's, it's a pleasure. Um, Thank you. Ghost Girl's been, been great. Uh, and you've made you've made a fan. Oh, thank you so much. This was such a lovely chat. You guys are wonderful. So thank you for oh, having me on. And I I would love to come back if that's ever an option. Oh, I would love I would love that. Thank you so much for coming on. And I I love that we kind of stumbled across you on Twitter. Like I didn't know anything about Ghost Girl <laughs> or any of your other stuff. And like this, and and that you have a playlist for a writing. Like all of that just like came it just yeah. like fell into place. And you've been I mean, so awesome to talk to. I can't wait for you to come back. Thank you. Sometimes Twitter is a good place. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Shout out to Jess Hernandez, who yes. has a book about a very happy and brightly colored unicorn school uh, that led to us talking about horror books. That's right. That's right. I <laughs> yes. love that book. I bought that for my friend's kid. And um, he. it was like, I'm taking this book to school. It was like his most favorite book. Uh, first day oh, that's so school. sweet. Yeah, it's a, such a cute story. It really is. Jess yeah. is wonderful. It is. She's so, going to love to hear that. Yeah. From unicorns to terrifying children. That's how we got here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you may contribute a verse. Thanks for listening this week. Find out more about us and our guests and the artists behind their cover and theme music at our websites, verse.show, renegenerate.com, and joshmonkwords.com. See you next verse. Bye.